Welcome to the Willow Valley Podcasting Channel, where exciting podcasts are created by Willow Valley residents, for Willow Valley residents, and about Willow Valley residents. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Ray Lowe, and I'm your host today on the Willow Valley Channel. And uh, as we've done a couple of other times, we're going to bring in a guest that we actually recorded on another podcast. Uh, so many of you know that I do a weekly podcast called Changing the Rules, and uh, you can find it on Apple iTunes and other places. Uh, but a while ago, we interviewed a, a Willow Valley resident, and uh, his name is Phil Schwab, and uh, Phil has just a fascinating career of uh, living overseas, uh, being a missionary overseas, and uh, we did this great interview, and I'd like to share it with you. So uh, listen as we uh, hear about Phil. Welcome to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best lives and advice on how you can achieve that too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. Good morning, everybody. And uh, we're here in our brand new studios in Willow Street, Pennsylvania. We're here with our our engineer, Luke Cagno, and if Luke weren't here, this thing wouldn't come off. And we have a special guest today that we're going to introduce in a minute. But I want to take a minute before we start and uh, remind you of why we're doing these podcasts. Uh, every week, we try to interview one of what we think are the luckiest people in the world. Now, the luckiest people in the world are those people who have pretty much taken control of their lives. They live them under... Uh, uh, their own rules uh, based on their own purpose and what they want to accomplish. And when they do this, it allows them to, uh, to, uh, to live the way they want to live, and they live more exciting and more fascinating lives. So we're showcasing somebody every week with the hope that maybe those of you who are struggling to find where that is for you, uh, you'll, you'll find a role model here. And again, the name of our show is Changing the Rules. And one of the things that we find is that uh, the people who are the luckiest people in the world deal well with rules. You know, we're filled with rules throughout our whole life. Uh, when we're born, our parents give us rules, and then the church gives us rules, and then the schools give us rules. And before you know it, we have all these rules that are trying to determine what it is that we do. And it was Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, uh, that, that came up and said, you know, if you're living your life under somebody else's rules, you're not living your own life. So there's a time when we have to sift and sort through these rules and decide which ones are going to be important and which ones are going to be the guiding principles for us. And we have a young man here, I emphasize young, okay, uh, who has been all over the world and who has certainly find out, found out what's important to him. And I want to introduce Phil Schwab. And I met Phil actually in a swimming pool believe it or not. Okay. And, and Phil is a fourth generation missionary. So Phil, say hi to everybody and tell us a little bit about being a fourth generation missionary. Hello, everybody. My grandfather was uh, an elder in the Presbyterian church and taught an immense Bible class and did ministry for many, many years. And then my father, uh, after being in the Navy, a uh, just four years, I guess it was. But anyway, he went to Japan with my mom. And by then I was 
I was around. And so the four of us, my younger brother and I and my mom and dad went to Japan in 1948. And uh, so I grew up there. Okay. So, so you, you were kind of preordained with where your life was going to go early, weren't you? You had, you had a lot of direction. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and tell me a little bit about uh, your, your early life in Japan. And I think one of the things that you mentioned during our pre-interview was that uh, missionaries were, were very welcome to Japan after the uh, end of the Second World War. So tell us a little bit about that, too. Well, the atmosphere in Japan had changed a lot after they lost the war to America. And it's like they weren't, they were thinking, hey, you know, maybe the American God is stronger than uh, the emperor and all of our worship of Shinto and everything like that. So General MacArthur uh, is said to have uh, made a a request that uh, a thousand missionaries come to uh, Japan because the doors are wide open. So I think that's what you're referring to. So my, a lot of people that were in the military and fighting the, fighting the Japanese, they had a heart to go and reach their enemies uh, with the gospel. And so that's what my dad, that's what my dad and mom did. Okay. So, so you were dragged along at this point. You're, you're not old enough to make your own decisions, right? Three. And age three. And so you were actually born in the United States. Is that correct? Yes. So you're yes. a U.S. citizen. I was born in a naval hospital. <laughs> okay. And, and you moved to Japan. So I think obviously Japanese is one of the languages that you speak. Well, I picked it up as a kid. I was three, uh, and so for two or three years in the neighborhood, I played with Japanese kids, and then I taught English later when I was in high school, and it ended up that my students, who were university students, they taught me more Japanese than I taught them English because I had to explain a lot in Japanese. So I picked up kind of a, a little grasp of Japanese, which I still have, but it's, it's very informal and conversational. Yeah, but I bet you can get get away get along pretty well over there if you have to. Okay, so so the first ten years or or maybe a little longer of your life was uh, living in Japan, and one of the things that you mentioned is that you learned to love the Asian culture. Yeah, well, um, it's almost like wherever you grow up, you know, you you tend to appreciate your surroundings and so forth, and. Here I was most of my time with Japanese people riding Japanese trains to go to school. It was an American school we went to. Okay. So I grew up knowing English. Okay. <laughs> but uh, surrounded by Japanese. And of course, Japanese uh, are very serious people. And Kissinger once said that the Japanese are a people that have no sense of humor. And so it's a very serious society. So I almost grew up being very serious, but I somehow overcame that. Okay. okay well, <laughs> but I appreciate having grown up in Asia, you know? Okay. So this set uh, kind of a structure for where you're going to go in your life. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I think, you know, we talked briefly about your choice of college and where you went to college. Mm-hmm. So what, what formulated all of that? Well, um, I was having to make a choice, of course, and um, I was offered a full scholarship to a liberal arts college. And um, at the same time, I felt I should start preparing for the ministry because I, that was what was on my heart. I wanted to be 
maybe going back to Asia or somewhere. And so I chose to go to a, a Bible college where I graduated with a, a bachelor's degree with a Bible major. And that's where I met my wife, actually. Okay. And my wife actually is a, a missionary's kid, too. She, her parents were missionaries of Bolivia. So we have quite a, and she, she, I was talking to her this morning and she said, well, I'm fourth generation. Well, actually we were both third generation. And then our daughter is a missionary in England working with young people. So she was saying, I'm a fourth generation too. So we so, need to get her in here and, 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 and yeah, we'll get the whole South American approach later. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So you're done with college now. And uh, how did you decide what you want to do and how did you formulate your plans and where did you go? Well, uh, I actually went on to graduate school, a seminary, graduate level. And um, when I was there, I, I met a lot of Chinese that were overseas students. And my roommate for a couple of years was from Hong Kong. And we got along very well. And um, I don't know, as long as time went on, I thought, man, I'd, I relate well to these Asians. And uh, if possible, I'd like to go back to Asia. And you did. I did. We okay. did. So where did, you, where did you go? Now, you were married by this time and right. everything. Okay, so where did you wind up? And, and then, uh, well, where did you wind up? Let's start there. We wound up in Taiwan. And uh, I was interested in, in um, a ministry with Chinese people. And... Um, so we wound up in Taiwan with a daughter, three months old, and starting language study in Taiwan. And so we studied Taiwanese full-time for two years, part-time for two years, and got going on that Asian language. And then later, 10 years later, we studied Mandarin as well and spent two more years <laughs> learning Mandarin. So anyway, um, that was our start. We had to learn culture and language, you know. So we have you done with four languages at this point. We have, yeah. you know, some Japanese, uh -huh. okay, yeah. and then Taiwanese, Taiwanese, and then Cantonese. Actually, man, actually, actually Taiwanese. Taiwanese. I know only two sentences of Cantonese. Okay, and but, Mandarin. Uh, I'd like to tell friends, you know, I've been in Asia so long, now my English have some problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and, and we have English, yeah. too. Okay. Right. Uh, all right, so when somebody becomes a... a a minister or mm -hmm. a, uh, a missionary, uh, what's the process? I mean, you just don't go to a foreign country and say, here I am, I'm a missionary. I mean, what do you, you get a sponsor? You know, how do you do that? Uh, what, what happens here? Yeah, well, no matter what, um, how you go out, what, who you're with, um, you have churches behind you, whether you're with the denomination or you're in a, a big program with the denomination. In our case, our mission is interdenominational, which means that uh, we have churches uh, from several churches from different uh, connections that supported us. So you've got the church uh, sending you out, basically, but then you need to go through an organization that can... Uh, can um, lead you and and train you and and also accept you in the first place and, 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 and fund say, you say and well actually the churches fund you okay but the organization has work going on that in that country and so they they have a, a program going and so you come there and they help you get the language and then get into ministry so it's a combination of the church and uh, the sending organization so here you are in Taiwan. Now, where, what, what do you do? You know, what was your primary mission once you got to uh, Taiwan and what were your responsibilities? Well, uh, twofold. I, for, 
for a number of years, we were in what we call church planting, which means starting new churches. And Taiwan, which is only 2% Christian, uh, today maybe a tiny bit more, but there's a need for, uh, as we looked at it, a need for churches. And so we did that. And then um, toward the latter time, latter part of my time there, they elected me as uh, field chairman. And so I was responsible for about 60-some people for a few years. So those are the two things I did. Okay. And, and then you were in Taiwan for 23 years. Mm-hmm. And then what caused you to go on next? Because was the next Hong Kong? It was. And uh, the year was 1996. And um, our organization realized that there were a lot of openings in China at that time. I mean, China was wide open. It just happened to be really wide open at that time for people coming in to uh, do medical work, educational work, um, um, other kinds of social work and so forth, working with tribal, poor tribal people, all kinds of things. And so our mission asked me to be kind of the point person and the good place to be a point person was Hong Kong. And so I was trying to help teams get started in China. That's what I was doing for four years after we left uh, Taiwan. Okay. So, um, Let's let's go back to these two places that you've been. When when you look at your experience in Taiwan, is there is there any particular thing that stands out as a memory or a, a tragedy or a benefit or anything that you want to talk about? Well, um, you mentioned a tragedy, and that's because I've I've shared with you we did face a tragedy. Yeah, I cheated on that one a little bit, <clears throat> Phil. Our son, Brian, um, was 15. He was in um, uh, the American school, um, and um, he was a freshman in high school and doing very well in English. Of course, it was American school. (laughs) But also, he was one of the best students in Chinese. He took Chinese as a foreign language. Uh, Just a regular kid, you know. He liked soccer and so forth. And the, uh, he was in a dormitory because we were living three hours away from the school. And his dorm dad uh, planned a, um, an outing, a camp out by a river. Um, and, and, so, uh, and some of the dads were there and some of the teachers. <clears throat> and so, um, so the guys uh, were swimming at one stage along the way. And the, actually, the... The people in charge didn't have any safety equipment, you know, like just plain old, what, what do you call life preservers and all that kind of stuff, because this is like 30, 32 years ago, you know? Yeah. And so unfortunately, Brian jumped into this river along with some other guys, <clears throat> and it had been raining for three weeks, and so the river was very swollen, and somehow he, he got swept away, and... Um, we were too far away to actually rescue him, so we, we lost him and didn't find his body really for a, for a week. And, um, and so um, this is a big thing, not only for us, but for all his friends and colleagues that we've had uh, there in Taiwan. So that was our tragedy that you... Well, okay, so, you know, you, 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 you took a tragedy and you're doing some good things about it. So uh, I, I know you have a campaign here to, you know, improve safety equipment to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Uh, and and this, is, this is an extension of your being a missionary, I think, to a large extent. So uh, anything else you want to say about, uh, you, unfortunately, you, you 
have this in your life. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we have a daughter and a son, and Brian and then Beth Ann was two and a half years older. And um, so um, I think the big, if I could focus on the main thing that, that I faced in this situation, was being able to forgive the school and the, the people that planned this thing. And uh, basically, faulty planning um, allowed this to happen, allowed the accident to happen. And so I had a challenge with this, uh, just a simple word, forgiveness, being able to forgive uh, the school. And it all happened internally. No, they didn't know I was struggling with this. But uh, one guy on the staff of the school said, you should sue the school. And I just very simply said to him, you know, uh, the Bible says Christians don't sue Christians. And it was a Christian school, and it was yeah. not intentional. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless... Um, this was a struggle for me, and I told God at one point, I said, you know, I feel very bitter and very hateful here, um, but if you can change me, I'm willing to be changed. And one day as I was out walking, I realized that I'd been changed by God, and I never had any problem with the bitterness and the hatred and all of that for the next 32 years till today, and it was a miracle. Okay, so so let's take a different approach here and okay. go back because sure. uh, one of the things that we've found about all of the luckiest people in the world is one of the mindsets that they have is is the fact that they work real hard to find their sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think yours might have been a little easier because it was kind of you were, you were born into it to some extent. So, yeah. so yeah. what is your sense of purpose in life? Okay. Well, when I met you at the swimming pool, you asked me the same question, and it kind of shocked me. I don't have people just saying, what's the purpose of your life? You know, first time I met you, you know. And I said, well, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'm a minister, and the catechism says the purpose of mankind is to love God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of my life. And it's helped you make decisions along the way as to where you want to go, how you treated your son's death and everything. Okay. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting in exploring lucky people for a long time. uh, It's amazing how many people have no sense of purpose or can't define what their sense of purpose is. Mm. So when you can do this, and when you can get a handle on it, it certainly allows you to, uh, to, to live your life in a more fulfilling way. Mm. So yeah. let's kind of let's go on here because there's more to your life than, than we've hit so far. So uh, we're in Hong Kong, and now we're going over to China. Mm-hmm. So where did you live in China? And, and uh, tell us a little bit about the China experience. Well, if you look at a map of China, and I like to call it the, the New England of China, because China sticks up just the way the United States does. And so we lived in a city called Harbin, H-A-R-B-I-N. And a lot of people call it Ice City because it's, uh, it's below freezing almost half of the year. And they have this big ice festival there every year. It's very famous. And this is, it's a long story, but this is where we ended up. We felt like people were interested in learning English. They were interested in medical teams, various social uh, services we could provide. So a team of us, five couples, ended up uh, in Harbin. And uh, I was there, uh, I was there with part of that team for uh, almost 10 years. And um, I liked you could ask the question, where did, you've lived in all these places, which place did you like best? Well, I liked 
China best because, uh, simplify, to say it simply, they weren't, the people at least in that area, more disconnected from Beijing, the big cities, you know, they, they weren't spoiled like people we've been with, other kinds of Chinese that were kind of wealthy and kind of first worldly, you know, this area, they were just wondering why we were, why we had come all this way and all that stuff. And they were very easy to get to know. And so we established friendships that have lasted till today. In fact, I'm in, I'm in on a, a Zoom meeting uh, once or twice a month right now with some of the, some of the guys we got to know there. And um, I, I call one uh, pastor there uh, about once a month, too, and have a long conversation with him. So here I am. Uh, we left there in, in 08. And here I am, you know, all these years down the road. And these are friendships that, that really meant a lot to us. These are people that appreciated our being there. It doesn't seem like any of the Hong Kong or Taiwan really necessarily <laughs> appreciated our being there. Mm-hmm. Oh, another American, big deal, you know. Yeah. But uh, this that was the attitude of these people. So we just... Right from the word go, you know, we established close relationships, and they were very, they reached out to us. They were very open. So that was our favorite place to be. And it's interesting, you're still in touch. Yes. And how long has it been? Yes. 13, 14 years <clears throat> since you've been away? Yeah, right. About 14 years, yeah. Okay, so continuing with your life, you now came back to the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So you're in, of all places, Washington, D.C. That had yep. to be a big letdown for you after all of these other places, right? <laughs> well, in some ways it was, but in other ways, <laughs> depends on what you mean, right? <laughs> but um, <clears throat> we were invited, um, we were actually on loan to another organization um, from our organization to work in Washington, D.C. And this is, uh, this this organization's purpose was to minister to leaders in Washington, D.C., so on the Hill and in the Pentagon, uh, and then also uh, foreign diplomats. And so that's why we were asked to come, is with our background in, in um, you know, overseas for all these years, they asked us to join a team, a small team, to uh, do various projects to help um, these diplomats to adjust uh, in some ways. And also, if they were interested in studying the Bible, that's what we were really excited about doing that with them. But we were, we were there for, um, you know, almost 10 years before we retired to the, our, our fourth country, my wife calls it, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And we love it. It's like country. We've been in all these cities, and now we're in the countryside, and we love it. <laughs> okay, and, and let's talk for a minute about retired, because uh, retired, by a lot of people's definition, is you sleep late in the morning, you go play golf, you do crazy things like that uh you're far from being retired so what what is it that you're doing now and where you where are you headed in the future well i tell people i'm retired but not tired okay (laughs) and i was eager to well actually my wife was worried about our moving here that i wouldn't you know i'd go uh, get my rocking chair and you know um, i wouldn't really know what to do with myself but um early on we became we, we came to know that Lancaster is the proportion of refugees in Lancaster area, the county actually, the proportion of refugees here to the population is, is one of the very highest in all of America. And so we, we ended up joining a team 
of people that were already working with welcoming teams, forming welcoming teams for the refugees. And so we're, we're, we're starting a church that's uh, trilingual, actually, the, whatever is said in English is translated into Arabic and sometimes into Russian. And this is moving along, but we're also developing welcoming teams that help families get settled, uh, find jobs, learn to drive, all of these different things that get the kids in school and all of that. And um, I teach a couple, I've taught a couple, um, a new family, uh, with three, they came with three kids, beautiful family from Syria. But um, what happened was the, the husband was uh, ganged up on back in, in, um, back in Syria, ganged up uh, by a, um, a bunch of, uh, well, it was gang people. I can't think of the right Thugs. word. But they hopped on yeah. him, took him away, and, and didn't give him anything to drink for two days. And when they gave him something to drink, they brought this big cup of it looked like water but it was actually Clorox and so they he he drank enough down to really ruin his his uh, his system going down you know and the U.S. it it appears to me the U.S. government is really interested in bringing in uh, some people who have serious physical conditions and we have the facilities here to help people like that so anyway that's that's his background and and I've enjoyed teaching the husband and wife English but in this case I had to start with ABC and helping them write their alphabet. And so that's pretty basic. But the kids, this son who's in fifth grade now, or I think he's in seventh grade now, he picked it up in about uh, six months. He was quite fluent in six months. And so he would sit down with us, this this couple that was just on the basics, and he would help us interpret. And and, uh, so that's one of the things I enjoy doing very much. And there's other practical things, like I've already said, that we we help uh, in developing these welcoming teams. Wow. You know, I could carry this on forever, but unfortunately, we're near the end of our time over here. So, you know... uh, I, I think our listeners are going to very easily see why you're one of the luckiest people in the world in, in spite of the tragedy in your life, mm-hmm. because you found a way to deal with all of these things in a way that I, it, I'm, I'm searching for a word and I don't know what it is. It's not necessarily make you happy, but make you fulfilled. Probably. Yeah, that's a good word. And, and uh, I, I think uh the track that you've been on is is just absolutely fascinating. You know, from China to J- or Japan, I guess, to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and uh, uh, when you start driving a horse and buggy over here, then we'll know you're in your next level of your career. But but do you have any final <laughs> comments that you want to add before we sign off? Oh my! Well, that's a good that's, one. That's hard to do. Oh oh my yeah. is a good one. I actually. think I think every day you know you accept. Actually, all the problems you face, you accept as coming from, we say coming through the hands of a loving God is how I look at it. And so we can accept whatever happens and deal with it because we realize that it comes through that, that grid, you know, and we can, we can survive. Well, Phil Schwab, thanks for being a guest on Changing the Rules. And uh, thanks for being one of the luckiest people in the world. And uh, thanks for being you. And uh, Luke... Why don't you sign us off? Thank you for listening to Changing the Rules. Join us next week for more conversation, our special guest, and to hear more from the luckiest guy in the world.
I hope everybody enjoyed hearing Phil's story. And, you know, if you get a chance to see Phil in the hallways or at dinner some night, you know, ask him about his life as a missionary overseas. I think you're going to find out the adventures continue and they're absolutely fascinating. Uh, Also, uh, if you found Phil's um, interview interesting, you might want to uh, look at our podcast channel, Changing the Rules. Uh, There are other great stories there. Some of them we're going to get a chance to share. Some of them we won't. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening, and be sure to listen again next week and every week when we'll have another exciting guest.